Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I just really love about our church is, is what you're going to see in the ministry fair today, and, and that is you're going to get just a, a glimpse of the teamwork that is our church. And I, I think if you were paying attention at all, you saw, you've seen it already in our service one person doing an announcement, another person, people leading worship, people serving uh, in the foyer, uh, here and there and everywhere. I love that. I love the teamwork. And, uh, you know, I, I have to give you a full disclosure. You know, sometimes uh, in recent days, pastors have gotten in trouble for uh, stealing material. I, I don't do that. But I want you to know that my sermons are always teamwork. Um, and the teamwork is uh, Barb uh, Watson, there you are, Barb Watson, who does the PowerPoints every week. I send her kind of a raw file of information, and I put things on there like, give me a picture of so-and-so and a picture of so-and-so, and she goes out and does that research and finds them, and then she sends it to me, and I realize I made mistakes in what I sent to her. And I say, oh, no, I didn't mean this, and I didn't mean that, and, and I send it back. And you know, she even does it when she's on vacation. She sends me an email. She goes, now, I'm going to be on the road this week, so send it to me by a certain time. And she does it even then. So, you know, it's, uh, it's every time I'm preaching, she's doing this. So I really appreciate that because uh, that would, would add a whole, a whole other piece to, uh, to my week. Uh, she's become an expert at that. Um, Turns out that all of, the, all of the heat that Glenn gave me a week ago about keeping my sermon short so we can see the Seahawks play was wasted air because I would have been doing you a favor to keep you here longer last week. <laughs> Except for the hardcore fans who even want to see the losing plays but eventually they got the job done. That's what matters, yeah. <laughs> now there was another team playing last week. Yeah. <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't sure at first if the Seahawks were playing, actually. But, but uh, this, uh, this other team there, uh, they got the job done eventually too but it appears they may have fudged just a little bit along the way. Let's get a big, ooh, that's right, those terrible New England Patriots. Oh, man. <laughs> How do you resolve something like that? I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know anything about that. Even if you find the person responsible, what's the penalty? How do you compensate the losing team? What if it really was a genuine mistake? <laughs> How do you prove that? What would be the penalty if it was a mistake versus something on purpose? Some of you right now are already thinking about the rules in the NFL rule book and you know exactly what should happen. I'm telling you what, there's only one set of winners in that situation and you know who it is? The lawyers. 
cha-ching, cha-ching, dollar by dollar or hour by hour. Those guys are, are laughing all the way to the bank on this thing. And that's how our world settles disputes. But God has a different plan. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints, the Christians, the born-again people, will judge the world one day? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more are things that pertain to this life? If you then have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that in front of unbelievers. Now, therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. This passage tells us one big truth and a whole bunch of small truths uh, along the way, and that big truth is this. Christians should settle disputes in the church, not in the secular courts. Now, I understand there are times when we get into legal difficulties and we have to go to court. Uh, God understands that. But this is talking in particular about interpersonal disputes or or legal problems between brothers. Maybe a, maybe a Christian owns land next to another Christian next door and they get into dispute over the boundary. It's that type of thing that he's talking about saying, can't you settle this among yourselves? He says, you should be settling it. Last week we learned this truth. We're asking this question, why? Why should Christians settle their disputes in the church? The reason that we learned last week is this. God has made us capable of resolving disputes through Christ-like character and the word of God. Those are the things that we will use, as chapter six says, to judge the world. That judgment is not about who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell. It's about ruling the world during the reign of Christ, that thousand-year reign when he's on the throne in Jerusalem, and we are reigning with him. We, are, we, are, we would think of it as being a governmental leader, if you will, in various parts of the world, and we will assist him. Well, how will we do that? We will do that according to his word and by the godly character that he's given us. And we have that godly character and the word of God now. That is why God says it is possible for Christians to bring their disputes with other Christians to the church. And there can be wise men who can understand the issues and make godly judgments. The second reason that we are going to answer this question, why should Christians settle their disputes in the church? The second reason that we're going to consider today is this. God has given us a, a unique value system to guide the process of resolving disputes among Christians. The value system is, is really hit on the head hard here at verse 7. Why don't you rather accept the wrong? When was the last time that was spoken about in a secular civil court? 
Oh, just take the wrong. It would be better for everybody. God says there is a value system for us that would make it desirable to accept the wrong, that, that it would, that it would uh, be, give up the loss and we need to understand what that value system is today, and that's why the Christians should have Christians helping them with their interpersonal disputes. Well, when we think about that value system, the basis of the very basis of it is God's law. In other words, when, when two Christians have a struggle getting along, we don't open up the Constitution of the United States, we open up God's Word. And we say, what does God's word say first and foremost about this? Now, I'm not, I'm not um, advocating the ignoring of civil law. I'm not doing that at all. I'm saying that the civil law comes second and God's law comes first. Or that in the use of civil law, God's law has to dominate how we would follow civil law in this realm of the church and in solving disputes ourselves. Listen to the familiar description of God's law. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness with the result being that the man of God or the person who is godly may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This word complete is sometimes translated perfect in the New Testament and it indicates brought to a intended destination or completion. In other words, if we had a small child here like, like my grandson Titus, and we would say, when will he be complete? It's when he's a mature adult. That's the, the normal path that he is on, and if something gets in the way, we would say there's a problem with that. God says that for you as a believer in Christ, the intended destination is for you to be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. God wants you to be a mature person. More importantly for our discussion today, he says the path to completion in your life is the word of God. He uses these four words. The first one is doctrine. The word doctrine refers to the content of scripture. It doesn't refer to truths enunciated in some way that's hard to grasp written in some thick theological book. It's just talking about the content of scripture. All of scripture is doctrine. Number two is reproof. Has to do with conviction. Obviously, there's conviction about wrong and there's conviction about right. The next word talks about that wrong when it says, it says uh, restoration. In other words, the, we, we need to know God's truth because sometimes we're gonna get off the path and we need to be convicted that we're off the path and we need to be instructed in righteousness or trained in how to live rightly. This, this, these two verses just summarize um, God's word about God's word and this one does it in even a simpler form. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now either God means what he says or he, or he doesn't. So when we think about having a legal dispute with a brother, we say, is it possible that contained within God's book is the way, the answer to how we can resolve this difficulty? Yes. That's what God is claiming today. But the starting point is your acceptance of God's word 
as the first and last word in your life. See, because if you're a Christian who's saying, well, yeah, the Bible's fine for issues of salvation, but when it comes to my legal dispute, I'm gonna get a lawyer and we're gonna sue and we're gonna fight this thing until I win because winning is what it's about. Rather than saying, what does God say this should be about? I was riding with a police officer in Seattle who was a, um, a Christian, claimed to be a Christian. He'd worked for a Christian ministry before he came to our agency. And we got a call for a, uh, some street people that were making trouble in the traffic somewhere. So we pulled up and he gets out and he goes over and he was very harsh and used a lot of obscene language and curse words and so on and told these people where they needed to go or else they're gonna go to jail. And he got back in the car and he said, that's the only kind of language these people understand. So what you're telling me, Christian police officer, is this isn't enough. When God says a soft answer turns away wrath, when God says you should be calling on the Holy Spirit and saying, Holy Spirit, I don't know how to get these people off this street. What you have to do is take matters into your own hand and use the language of, of anger and frustration and let loose on them and make them fear you. You see, we do that when we compartmentalize our life. Say, I have a home life, I have a church life, I have a job life, and then I have legal issues, and you could make as many boxes as you have. Maybe you have a school life, maybe you have a club life, and a lot of people would say, well, you know, the Bible is good for church life. But when it comes to a legal issue, no, I'm not gonna go to the Bible. Or when it comes to work, you know, when I go to work, that's work and that's a job and that's business and business works different than the church. Oh, I'd agree with that. Business works different from the church. Frankly, if there was some wrongdoing on, by that football team last week, I wouldn't expect anybody to admit to it. I don't expect that. That would be refreshing but I don't expect that because it's money. And it's all about money. That's the point. God says your life is not all about money, but I only can have that perspective if I'm starting here. Is this the starting point for your life or are you willing to say, well, I'm gonna compartmentalize my life and I'm gonna live part of it by God's law and part of it by my own ideas and part of it by the civil law and, and so on and so forth. We are bound by the laws of our country as residents and citizens, and even more so because God tells us to obey. But what God wants us to grasp is that from the very first time we, we sense we're in a dispute with somebody, before it ever becomes an actual battle, we need to choose our words and behaviors according to God's word because God's wisdom is fundamentally different from man's wisdom. And no passage puts this together better than James chapter three when he says, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. Now those words, are so, those words are so extreme and so harsh, we'd say, I don't have bitter envy and self-seeking in my heart. Let me put it to you this way in terms of a legal battle. Is your goal to win? Well, of course. That's what bitter envy and self-seeking is. My goal at all cost is to win. 
God says, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. Don't call yourself godly. This wisdom does not descend from above, from heaven, but it is earthly, sensual, and horror of horrors, it's demonic. You know, in other parts of the scripture, it talks about the doctrines of demons. You want to know what it is? Here's part of it right here. If you don't take care of number one, nobody else will. Isn't that right? Yeah, see, he agrees with me, or she. Which is fine, don't worry about that. She'll figure it out one day. It's earthly, sensual, demonic, for for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. And right in that same passage, he says, now the wisdom that is from a God, is from God, is first of all, pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness, here's the key. God's wisdom is about accomplishing righteousness. Our wisdom is about accomplishing what I think is best for me at this moment. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You have some notes there based on that passage and I would encourage you to keep that in mind and look at it later. I didn't have them both together in the picture here. Man's wisdom is self-driven. That's the key. I do not talk about this today as one who has conquered his (laughs) self-interest. Because that won't happen until I see Jesus. This is a daily battle. But you can be certain that if you're starting and ending point is what is best for me, that that is what God says is the bitter envy and the self-seeking and it's not godly, it's earthly. Man's wisdom is self-driven. God's wisdom seeks first, first of all, what is pure? And the word pure actually is the word holy. It means that which is right, that which is true, that which is godly, that's the first thing. What is the most godly outcome? What can, what can I find? God's wisdom seeks peace. I think people that break the rules should be punished. I'm a rule-keeping kind of guy, okay? How would you be a Christian on the Seahawks seeking peace in relationship with the Patriots about this issue of cheating. Oh, man, your ethical dilemma just got way harder, didn't it? Wow. I I don't have the answer to that exactly, but I know that God's wisdom seeks peace. God's wisdom treats people with gentleness. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. God's wisdom caused people to give in. It says it yields and it's full of mercy. I I just put that real simply, not to pile on. God's wisdom creates good deeds. In other words, the result, the, the things that come out of it. And lastly, God's wisdom treats people equally. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 
Why would you take your dispute in front of a secular court? This is not the stuff that the secular court is seeking. The secular court is saying, let's, let's, let's comb the hairs on the law and let's divide it right down and boom, it's for you. God's, God's priorities are much broader, much bigger. And that's why the discernment for our dispute resolution comes from those who possess godly maturity. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. We already looked at this a week or so ago. Is there not a wise man who could judge? A wise man. The qualification for church leadership in the New Testament is godly maturity in, in men. And here's an example of it in Acts chapter six. Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. Here it is, there's a dispute between two groups of Christians. A complaint against the Jewish Christians by the Greek Christians because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. They had a social welfare program going on in the first church, and some of the people thought their widows were getting shortchanged. And so it, it rose up to a complaint level, and here's what they said we're going to do about it. Then the twelve, the apostles, summoned the multitude. They had a congregational meeting like we're going to do tonight. And they said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. In other words, they're saying us twelve could make it fair. We know how to make it fair so we could stop preaching and teaching and praying and we could go out and make this distribution of food fair. But he said, that's not what we should do because God's called us to preach and teach. So, instead of that, you, you go find seven men of good reputation, they have good character, who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They, they demonstrate by their lives that they know God's word and are living God's word and we will appoint them over this business. And we could go on and read the rest of the passage, but we won't. And they found those seven men, they started that program, and everybody was happy. But it takes godly, mature men to have wisdom when it comes to wisdom issues. Why is godly character so important when it comes to leadership in the church and the resolution of disputes? The reason is because godly character only comes through the knowledge of and use of God's word. If, as we said in our first point, that the, that the basis of dispute resolution is God's word, then the people who will be applying God's word in hard situations must know it and be living it. That's what this passage is about. Everyone who partakes only of the milk of the word is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe or he's immature. But solid food, the real meat of the word, belongs to those who are of full age. That is, by reason of use, by reason of use, they have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The way we become mature men, according to 1 Corinthians 6, the word wise, if you want to be a wise man who can preside as a judge when it is necessary, is to know God's word and live it. In our society, those who preside as judges have advanced degrees in the law 
and they have experience in court, as well they should. Because when it comes, people are going to stand before them and make their arguments, and they need to know the basis upon which they will make those decisions. And that is the civil law. But if we are going to settle disputes by God's word, then those who are going to listen and give counsel and interact and bring a resolution to the problem have to know God's word. And God's word is only known by our mind and our life together. J. Vernon McGee put it this way in his commentary, no secular judge or jury is equipped to make spiritual decisions because they do not comprehend spiritual principles. A secular judge may know the material in the law books, but he knows nothing about spiritual decisions. He has no spiritual discernment. That's the reason in general why God wants godly men who have proven their character to be the leaders in the church because they have proven that they understand God's word. The reason we must dissolve our, resolve our disputes according to God's word is because of our goal. The goal of our dispute resolution is God's glory. As I said before, the, the, the normal goal that we have as just human beings and the, the goal in our secular court system is to win. If you watch uh, some criminal you know, crime TV shows, sometimes we see a lawyer even portrayed that he wants to win even though, or she wants to win, even though they know their client was guilty. I want to win. I want what is best for me. As Christians, we have to rise above that and say the goal of our dispute resolution is God's glory. When uh, Jim Hively and I went to Greece to visit Helen a few years ago, we, we rode the subway trains, and they... They look like this, and the crowd looks like that, if not more people. And we were standing there waiting to get on, waiting to get on, and, and somebody was kind of nudging up against me. Now, that's not uncommon. Uh, outside of the United States, people don't give you your buffer of space. You know, we have this, uh, I don't know, one or two foot rule, whatever it is, and that's my space, now don't be getting in it. In other places, if you leave a foot between you and the person in front of you, somebody will take that space. And so we're standing there, and I'm feeling this kind of pushing up against me, and I thought, well, it's just what it is, you know. And, but it kind of persisted, and I thought, that doesn't feel right. And I kind of turned and looked, and there's a girl next to me trying to pick my pocket. <laughs> and I must confess to you that my first thought was not the glory of God. <laughs> I hung on to my wallet, but I didn't say, Jesus loves you. Jesus has a better plan for your life. But he does. And she obviously needs it. I, I don't know what the exact right response would have been. I, hanging on to my wallet was certainly desirable. Our frame of reference will always be what is best for me until... We train ourselves to think above that. And this is one of the great challenges of the Christian life. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It is really hard to put God's work first all the time. And yet, 
especially when we come into conflict, whether it's, whether it's a husband and wife or a parent and child or a couple of people in the church, it's, it's, it's vital that we stop and say, wait a minute, what does God want to happen here? What is the thing that is gonna bring the most honor to God? And it will vary somewhat with the situation, but we've got to stop and think that way, which should drive us back to the scripture, back to everything we know about God's word, and say, what does God want to accomplish here? Because God does have an agenda, and we need to find it. Our natural inclination in dispute is to talk about winning, but God's inclination for us is not to talk about winning, but much more so to talk about putting others first and to be gracious in the process. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Wow, there's one I haven't conquered. So that you can become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. God says that our grumbling and complaining quotient has an impact on our testimony. In other words, how you respond to the challenges of life shows how close you're walking with him to other people. We're shining, you know, we have a reputation. Everybody has a reputation. The question is, are you shining as a light? Do people look at you and go, oh no, that person is a Christian. That person really knows the Lord. Or are they looking at you going, well, I know that guy goes to church. I know that gal goes to church. I don't know. I, and again, I, I, you know, the old saying is when you point the finger when you preach, there's three pointing back at you. I'm not preaching this like an expert today, folks. Here, here's what Peter says about this. Talking about Jesus, he committed no sin. We know that. There was no deceit found in his mouth. And when he was insulted, spoke badly about, he did not return that. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now think about it. If there was ever a guy who could have won the dispute, it was Jesus. Because he, 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 he knew he was sinlessly perfect. He knew exactly what was right and wrong. And, and we can read about some of the way people treated him. Oh, he cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons. That had to hurt. He's on the cry. If you're the son of God, come down, save yourself and us. When he was insulted, when he was treated poorly, instead of fighting back, fighting fire with fire, he said, God, I'm in your hands. And he kept his lip buttoned. God wants us to act like Christ. We know that. We have, you, 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 there was a big fad wearing the little rubber band. What would Jesus do? This is what Jesus would do. He would also do this. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is the way that people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
I have to think that's at the heart of what Paul's writing about here in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, are you people really taking one another to court at the secular court and not loving one another? Finding God's will in a dispute is a day-by-day, minute-by-minute, prayerful pursuit. It isn't wrong to say you're wronged. It wasn't wrong for me to hang on to my wallet. But he also didn't want me to hate her. That's because the approach to our dispute resolution has to be God's grace. God's grace. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, please. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21, we have a a story, that a sermon illustration, if you will, that Jesus told to teach what it means to be gracious and forgiving. Then Peter came to him, verse 21, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter thought he was really being gracious. Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Christ's, the the Christian life, the rule of Christ in your life is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him a fortune, 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. The master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave the debt. That's gracious. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred days wages, three months pay. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had, what, he had, what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if you do not forgive his brother his trespasses. In other words, God says, listen, my standard is forgiveness, it's graciousness. You see, the godly Christian doesn't think about this earthly dispute just in earthly terms. They think about it in terms of of heavenly and earthly. Here this brother or sister has wronged me. They have taken advantage of me. They have taken this money from me or this land from me or whatever this issue is. And as we think about approaching it, we think of the normal human way which is adversarial. That's what our court system is called. It's adversarial. I am going to fight you till I get what I have coming. And God says, do you remember when I forgave all of your sin? Compared to your sin, what this guy owes you is not that much. 
And God wants us to be gracious as we work through the resolution of disputes. From a pastor of years ago, Harry Ironside, he wrote this. Many years ago, as a little fellow, I attended a meeting in Toronto where some difficulty had come up between brethren. And they did, as the apostle suggests. My dear mother took me along, and he puts in quotes, little pitchers have big ears. In other words, his mom wanted him to learn some. And I well remember how horrified I was to see men that I esteemed and had been taught to respect apparently so indignant with each other. I can remember one man springing to his feet and with clenched fists saying, I will put up with a good deal, but one thing I will not put up with, I will not allow you to put anything over on me. I will have my rights. An old Scotch brother, who was rather hard of hearing, leaned forward holding his ear and said, What was that, brother? I did not get that. I say I will have my rights. You did not mean that, did you? Your rights? If you had your rights, you would be in hell, wouldn't you? And you are forgetting, aren't you, that Jesus did not come to get his rights. He came to get his wrongs, and he got them. (coughs) I can still see that man standing there for a moment like one transfixed, and then the tears broke from his eyes. And he said, brethren, I have been all wrong. Handle the case as you think best. And he sat down and put his face in his hands and sobbed before the Lord. And everything was settled in three minutes. When in this spirit, it is so easy to clear things up. When in this spirit, it's so easy to clear things up. When we bow before the Lord, he straightens them out. God wants us to be gracious. The approach to our resolution is God's grace. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. That graciousness will sometimes, not always, but sometimes lead us to a point of cost. That is the point that Paul was making in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. He says, why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why don't you let yourself be cheated? In other words, sometimes the cost of our dispute resolution may be a sacrifice. There are times when we may have to say, you know, I'm just going to let this go for the sake of the Lord. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to hang on to his life and get everything he can for himself will lose his life. But whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? John MacArthur put it this way. 
It's far better to lose financially than to lose spiritually. And again, I read the words of Peter. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He just committed himself to God who judges rightly. From another godly commentator on this passage, who was a pastor at the time, years ago I fell into the hands of an unscrupulous businessman who persuaded me to invest money in what he knew to be a worthless enterprise. He gave me some equally worthless documents as security. That happened up in Linden in recent years, didn't it? Those of you that follow current events in Whatcom County, a Christian man borrowed money from many, many people and he gave them worthless instruments to back it up. When the first interest check was returned by the bank, I knew I had been duped. I took the worthless check to him and demanded an explanation. It was a mistake, he said. He had meant to cover the check. I should redeposit it. It was the beginning of a long trail of lies and evasions. At last, I took legal counsel. A clear case of fraud, the attorney said. Let me have the case, and I'll see the man in prison. The man was a professing believer. He went to the same church as I did. I knew his wife and little children. After some agonizing heart searching, I decided to let the matter rest. The sum of money involved was considerable, at least for me, but it was not worth a lawsuit. I decided to suffer myself to be defrauded. Ah, the worldly wise will say, then this brother was able to use 1 Corinthians 6 as a way to get away with fraud. Well, yes and no. In actual fact, the case was simply referred to a higher court. The man did not get away with his dishonesty, as I learned later. He paid in other ways. Nor was I the loser. A wealthy businessman friend of mine heard what had happened. He approached me one day and said, I should have warned you about that man. I didn't know you were a potential victim. The Lord has put it on my heart to help you. Sell me those securities. Don't you worry about my taking a loss. I can absorb it easily enough. Anyway, I have more leverage than you have, and I know more about him than you do. Leave it to me. The man was as good as his word. Within a few weeks, he handed me a check for the full amount. Doubtless, it does not always work out like that. But it will always work out in the end. God might swoop in and make you whole when you have a dispute and bring it to the church. Or he might not. He might not make you whole till eternity. But either way, your life for Christ will honor God both now and bring you reward then. You know, if the Corinthian believers did one of those fun online exercises that are so popular and get passed around Facebook, you know what, take this series of questions and find out what movie star you are. If they had one this week and said, find out what football player you're like, and the Corinthian church took that test, it would be Richard Sherman. I am the greatest! 
you're going to send some pussy little guy like that against me, I'm going to beat you every time. Got his elbow hurt in the game last week. Somebody said, how's your elbow doing this week? I can still slap my brother. <laughs> now, he's a great player. I, I, I wouldn't diminish that at all, but, but he'll let you know about it too, won't he? <laughs> and see, that's what the Corinthian church was all about. Hey, we're great! We're great! And that's why the Apostle Paul says, are you so smart that you don't even have one wise man who could do this for you? They thought they were great! And yet they were spiritually immature and the results of their life was not bringing honor to God. Jesus, on the other hand, was 100% perfect. If anybody had a right to brag, it was him, but he didn't. And that's why Philippians 2 is our final challenge today. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, esteem or value or hold up others better than yourself, let each, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Let this mind, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's hard to put yourself on second. It's so easy to fight for your rights. There's no doubt about that. It's a tough challenge. But God says that it is in graciousness and it is, is in forgiveness. It is in putting others first that we accomplish his will and we help people become disciples. Heavenly Father, help us. We are self-centered by nature. You know that. You know what a great uh, challenge you've laid before us to put ourselves down and to put others up. Help us. Help us. Surely, the, surely there will be some challenges to our lives this week as we go forth to apply this scripture. Father, give us your value system in our disputes. I pray in Christ's name, amen.